Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're uh, new with us, it's really good to be back. I was away last week enjoying some time off with my family, and I'm very grateful for Reynolds and his message last week. And if you missed it, there should be a copy of a CD of the message uh, on the information desk. I think I got a fresh battery, so I'm ready to go um, for this little joke from last week, if you missed that. Um, but anyway, uh, now you know why, brother. I change the battery every, every Sunday. All right, let's go. Let's, uh, let's dig into it. Ephesians chapter 2, if you have a Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are. We're continuing our message, our series of messages through Ephesians. We find ourselves in chapter 2 today. And this morning, we're going to cover the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. Um, my wife, who is not here today, she's actually sick uh, and was up all night with stomach problems, and so she stayed home. Uh, she likes to say, and I think she's true, I think she's right in this, she likes to say that I function in hyperbole. Um, I tend to exaggerate things um, and blow them out of proportion, usually for my own well-being or for my own sake. Um, and so this is going to sound a little hyperbolic, but um, I think that this particular passage that we're going to cover today is probably the clearest and certainly one of the most important passages in the whole Bible because it, in its just one paragraph here, is a very comprehensive and succinct, succinct explanation of the whole point of the Bible, in fact, the whole point of the universe, which is what God has done in Christ to save a lost people for himself, for his own glory. As I look back at the history of our church, we've been a church now for about six and a half years, and if you were to ask me what verse we have probably preached on or taught on or come back to most often in those six and a half years, it would probably be these ten verses that we're going to cover today. So um, this is a, a very important passage that we're going to look at. After I speak on these, these passages, these verses, we're going to receive communion together as uh, a body. And if you are a Christian, if you are a believer and follower in Jesus, which means that you are turning away from sin, doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you're turning away from sin and you're trusting in what Christ has done through his death and resurrection as your only hope for right standing before God. That means you're a Christian. And whether or not you're a member of this church or not, you're welcome to receive communion with us. If you're not yet a Christian, I am really glad that you're here. I think for those of you that are not yet Christians, there's probably two types of you. There's those that you probably are in this room and you realize you're not a Christian and maybe you came through the invitation of a friend and you're here to kind of investigate Christianity and the claims of the Bible. I'm really glad you're here. And we want to walk with you in your journey and pray that God would... Open up your heart to see what he has done. But this, what we're going to do after the message is over when we receive communion is really a family meal. It's something that Christians do. And so there's no embarrassment or there's, there's no shame in you just not participating in this family meal because what we're doing is something very sacred where we remember the whole point of what the gospel is all about. And then there's a second type of, I think, person who may not be a Christian in this room and you may think you are, but maybe you're not. I pray that by God's grace today, that as we speak on these incredible words from the Apostle Paul, that maybe you would become a Christian even today, truly a Christian, 
and that you would be able to receive this meal with us. Well, let me read these words, and then let me pray, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into it. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, uh, this verse can be found on page 688. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that Bible. And if you forgot your Bible today, I'd really encourage you to follow along with us. Well, let me read Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. And as, as uh, I'm about to pray, let me just kind of go off topic here for just a moment. I see a young soldier in this room. I won't identify him because he's part of a unit that's kind of secretive. Um, but he is deploying uh, with uh, uh, his unit to, uh, he's deploying to a very, very dangerous place in our national defense, and I think today is going to be his last Sunday for a while, and so if you'd, if you'd remember, you know, my brother, we've got a few other young soldiers, part of this church who are in harm's way, even as we speak, A.J. Bastone, Amy Stefanetta, Nick Prevett, I'm sure a few others that are escaping my attention. We've got a young man here today who's deploying. Let's just pray and ask the Lord to help them as we ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Father, as we come to you, we do come very humbly. Uh, First, I just, I think of my brother who's um, in a few short hours packing up his stuff. He's going to be on the other side of the world probably sometime early this week um, defending uh, our freedom and fighting the global war on terror. Lord, I pray that you'd give him wisdom as he leads his men. And we pray that he, along with his men, would return safely home. We pray that you'd protect AJ and Amy and Nick. There are many other soldiers who are deployed in harm's way. Lord, we hate war, but we know that your scripture tells us that you raise up governments that are not perfect, but that execute your righteousness against evil people. And so, Lord, we're very thankful for our military, and we pray for our president. We're thankful for him. We pray that you would bless President Obama, that you would give him and his advisors wisdom. And we pray for a quick end to these conflicts, 
and for our men and women to come home safe and for righteous governments that would be open to the gospel to be raised up in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to this text, Lord, we, we just cannot exaggerate the importance of these words. And I in particular feel my inadequacy to even speak publicly to these people that I love dearly about these things. These are enormous truths, and my life is so small and so inconsistent so often with these truths. It's filled with hypocrisy and, and failure, but God, you by your grace have given me new life in Jesus, and you've called me to preach on these things, so Lord, would you help me now for the sake of these people? Lord, for my friends in this room who are Christians, would you stir our affections for Jesus as we hear the simple good news of what you have done to save us? God, would it not be old, tired religion to us, but would it, would it awaken in us again a fresh affection for you? And for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, they have not yet passed from death to life, whether they realize it or not. God, would you be so kind as to use even my feeble words as instruments of your grace so that you would shine the light of the truth of Jesus and cause people to be born again into the knowledge of what you have done through his cross. And Lord, I pray that you'd do these things as we have already sung today, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this passage, I think, breaks down into three very kind of digestible segments. So I'm just going to tell you kind of what my outline is, and then we're just going to work our way through it. Um, and then we're going to end on just, I think, four applications of this particular passage. The first, first three verses kind of break down into mankind's condition apart from God. That's the first little chunk. And then it kind of goes into an explanation in verses 4 through 6 of how God actually saves us, what he does. And then it ends in verses 7 through 10 with a, a sort of global, universal look at why God saves. Okay, so did you get that? So for the first little chunk there, mankind's condition apart from God. Second middle part that we're going to handle is how God actually makes people Christians. And then the final part, that which we'll look at just briefly, is then why God does this. Why? So right there you can just see this, this sort of universal, comprehensive, um, all-encompassing outline of the point of everything that we have in these ten verses. So let's look, let's look at mankind's condition apart from God. And something that you'll notice, I hope you maybe noticed as I read these things, that this verse is filled with incredible pessimism about the ability of man, and it's also filled with incredible optimism about the power of God. So let's look again at just the first three verses. Paul, Paul says a few things. He says, I'll just read the first three verses again. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, so there's three things that I want you to see about man's condition apart from Christ, but there's one thing even before that that I want you to realize is that Paul is talking not just to these Ephesians here. He's really talking to all of us. How do we know that? Because we could think, well, verse 1, he says, and you were dead. Maybe he's just talking to these Ephesian people at this particular time and place. 
but he expands it. He says in verse 3, he's talking about among whom we all once lived, all of us. And then he ends it by saying that we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he goes from kind of zooming into this particular group of people to zooming out to including himself and kind of everybody else around, then to all of mankind. So these three things that we're going to see that Paul says about our condition apart from God apply to all of us. The first is, is that we are dead. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. Paul says it there in verse 1. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now this is difficult for us to think about because we tend to think of how very much alive we are. And we've probably never lived in a time when, except for early biblical times, when the human uh, life span was as long as it is through modern medicine. And we've got, man, you just watch an infomercial. It's just health and fitness and beauty. And, and we feel as alive and as capable as we have ever been. And when the Bible speaks about our state in sin and it says that we are dead, it's not talking about where we are right now physically or emotionally. Some of us may be great athletes and very, very physically alive. Some of us may be very, very intelligent and emotionally very, very, very together and very, very, very uh, wise in just how to do something. But the Bible clearly states here that what sin has done, and sin is a rejection of God's primacy and a preference for things outside of God, it has not just sort of neutralized us. This is really, really important. It's so foundational that sometimes we gloss over it. But what our rebellion has done, our turning away from God and turning and trust in ourselves, it hasn't just neutralized us or minimized us or made us less than what we could be. It has spiritually cut us off from God, separated us, and it has rendered us spiritually dead and unable to even interact with God. And that's what he says all of us are, apart from God. The second thing it says is it says that we are enslaved. We're not just dead. We are, we are shackled to this sin and death. And there's three things there. It's kind of the, the unholy trinity of the scriptures. It gives us three things that we're enslaved to. Look at, uh, look at verse 2. It says, it says that... We're dead in these trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world. So he's talking about the spirit of this age. So the first thing that we're enslaved to is just this kind of fallen culture. We all are just like, we're like fish. We're like being taken in a riptide. When I was a little kid, we used to vacation in Carpinteria Beach in between San Diego and Los Angeles. When I was a little kid, we got some little, little nasty little hotel. My parents had some timeshare with some friends, and I don't know, I mean, it must have been like two bucks a night, and roaches falling from the ceiling. It was just, it was terrible. But anyway, we'd hang out there all summer long, and there were terrible riptides in California. I guess they have them in Florida, too. I don't, I don't go in the water. I saw Jaws in the late 70s, and I haven't gone in the water below, like, waist deep ever since. I mean, seriously, I don't go in the water. That's another thing we'll talk about another day. I am petrified of sharks. But anyway, there's a riptide. There's a riptide in California that's really, really strong, and uh, and my father one time was, was, was swimming out, and I was a little kid building a sandcastle on the beach with my little friends, and I just saw my dad kind of waving at us, and it was kind of like, hey, hey, dad, hey, but then his wave kind of became a sort of desperation, like somebody come out and get me, and dad was just going back, like, and then I saw him swimming, and my dad was at that time really fit and in good shape at that time, and then he, he, he's, Sorry, Dad, but he, he started to be drugged out to sea. And then, I mean, this is a vivid thing. I was like nine or eight, and a helicopter came with a rope and an inner tube and 
got him because he was being drug out by the riptide. He could not resist it. And I remember just one of the most monumental memories of my childhood, seeing my dad getting carried out to sea and then rescued by this, this inner tube dangling by a helicopter. And that's what Paul is saying here. There's this course, there's this stream, there's this undercurrent, there's this riptide of all of our fallenness coalescing together that none of us can resist. I mean, just take 30 seconds and watch TV. And you'll see what a fallen culture we are in. And it's pulling us out. So that's the first thing that we're enslaved to. Secondly, there is then a very real enemy. He says it's the prince of the power of the air. Midway through verse 2 there, it says the spirit, or yeah, following the prince of the power of the air. So this course of this world is now following our enemy, the devil. And he is very much at work in the sons of disobedience. And so we not only have this course of this world, sort of this fallen culture sort of combining together to be this riptide carrying us away from God, but now we have a very real and personal enemy who is against us working for our destruction. And then thirdly, we have just this internal flesh, this, this desire that takes us away from God. And it says it there in verse 3. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now listen, uh, there's nothing wrong with passions and desires. In fact, God gave them to us. But when those passions and desires begin to dead in on themselves and want pleasure outside of God and want pleasure for our own sake and want glory for our own sake, even the very good gift of pleasure and desire that God gives us, do you see how when we turn that inwardly and make it about us, then it becomes an idol then whereby we worship God instead of Him. And so you see sort of this unholy trinity where you have this culture that's dragging us away. You have this personal and very real enemy who wants to destroy each of us. And then we have our own flesh that has fallen and has turned inward on itself. Martin Luther, the great reformer, Paul mentioned him in one of our songs. I think he spoke about this word. I don't even know if it's a word that he made up or maybe it's some Latin word, but he talked about the incurvatousness of our own nature. In other words, it's curved in on itself. This is what he wrote in his commentary on the book of Romans about our own nature. He says this, Our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. I mean, friends, that's the state of mankind apart from God. We are dead, we are enslaved, and we are then, thirdly, rightly condemned by God. I know this is super cheerful here on the first Sunday of, of December. We've got a few Christmas songs mixed in. And Paul, Paul said, hey, man, we're going to sing a couple Christmas songs. Do you think that one we're going to sing for the offertory might be a little too heavy? No, nah, don't worry about it. I got the heavy covered. We're going to handle that here. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. But, but, but friends, before, as C.S. Lewis said, you have to understand the disease of human nature before you can even get to the cure. <laughs> friends, we, under, we have to understand what the problem is before we even understand the gospel. And so, so we're not only are we dead, but we are enslaved and we are rightly condemned by a holy God. The Bible is clear. Friends, we could spend a whole Sunday talking about the justice of God and judging and condemning human rebellion. But... 
But let's just stick to this text and say, suffice it to say that all of us have participated in this. All of us are dead in our sin apart from God. All of us are enslaved by it, completely unable to break free from it. And all of us, whether we are an obvious public criminal or whether we are a self-righteous, moralist church kid, are rightly condemned by God. And that's just a clear witness of Scripture. I'm not adding any opinion to this at all. There's no commentary. That's just clear. It's hard for us, though, isn't it? I want to sympathize with, with my own sort of heart, and I'm sure yours, my, the objections that rise up in me. It's hard for us to think of ourselves in that way, though, isn't it? Most of us. Maybe some of you can think, yeah, I, no doubt. That's me. But I think for the average sort of relatively moralistic person who grows up in the Bible, but it's difficult to think of ourselves as being deserving of God's wrath like the rest of these rebels who fly planes into buildings and murder and steal and rape. This is what Tim Keller says and just a, a sort of very good picture that, that helped me kind of understand my own heart. He compares our heart. Tim Keller is a pastor of a, a church up in New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian uh, church, and he says that the human heart is like a little computer. Apart from Christ, it's like a little computer that has this unbelievable processor in it, and everything that goes through that little computer analyzes every situation in life, asking this one question, what's in it for me? See, that's the nature of our flesh that we are born with, and that little computer sort of metaphorically speaking, is always asking this question, what's in it for me? And so we can, use, we can use all things in this world, even good things and good behavior, to sort of ultimately, at its core, make it about us. And so, friends, do you see how when, when we realize that that little, that little core processor, you know, that, that, that even Bill Gates and anybody that comes up with the new, you know, the new thing, nobody can keep up with the speed of this core processor that's in our heart because even our good actions are always, apart from Christ, are always ultimately trying to glorify ourselves. So do you see, I mean, it's obvious to see, oh, well, that guy's committed some public felony or crime against humanity. Oh, obviously, we can look at the dictator or the criminal and say, oh, well, obviously, they are an object of wrath and deserve God's condemnation. But what about this good guy that just kind of gives himself to all these good works, but he's not a Christian? Well, when we look more deeply at that, we realize that what is behind every effort of human goodness, apart from acknowledging God as the source of goodness, is a sort of little internal idol worship, where we even use our good works to receive the praises of men to make much of ourselves, and when we want to make much of ourselves at our core, apart from giving all glory to God, we are at our core idolaters and rightly condemned. And we, like Luther says, are curving even our good works in on ourselves. And so before we move on to look at how God saved, let's just make a couple observations here. We, friends, can we admit that we don't instinctively think of ourselves this way? I don't. And so that should inform even our view of the gospel. The gospel is not something, it's not a set of ethics by which you are to live better. We don't need help. We need to be brought back to life. Our sin has killed us, enslaved us, and condemned us. We need rescuing. We don't need moralistic rules 
That's the first observation. The second is, that, and this is harsh, but this is true. There are only two types of people. There are those who are still dead, enslaved, and condemned. And there are those, as this passage goes on, who have received the saving, resurrecting grace of God through Christ. There are only two types of people. I, look, I admit I'm a pastor of a church. I'm giving my life to preaching the gospel, and I don't instinctively think that way. You know, I see somebody, oh, he's a pretty good guy. He's good. He's good. He's no more good than a man on the moon if he doesn't have Christ. He's, he's in the same camp as the dictator, the terrorist, the murderer, just like I was before I came to Christ. He's a, he's a rebel worshiping his own broken idol. Nobody's good apart from Christ. We don't think that way. But this scripture clearly tells us that. And so when we're presented with a scripture that is contrary to our natural instinct, one of the greatest habits we can get into as Christians is to learn to bow our heart to even the harsh, harsh and difficult truth of scripture rather than to Say, oh, well, that doesn't feel good. I'm going to move that aside. This is true. Well, then let's keep going. Because now that I have you in the depths, and some of you are about ready to, um, uh, you know, act like that guy Wimpy on Popeye that, you know, just wants another hamburger. Um, I don't know where that came from. Forget that. <laughs> Most of you are too young to remember Popeye, that little sort of guy that was always complaining, just kind of woes me. Let's get to the good news now. Let's get to the incomprehensible good news of how God saves. Verse 4, two of the sweetest words in the Bible. <laughs> but God, if you're a kid like me that grew up in the 70s watching Popeye, surely you also watched Schoolhouse Rock. And you knew one of the songs, right? I don't know if they still played it in the 80s or 90s, but I don't know. I mean, my mom's an English teacher. She was here a couple weeks ago. I'm not sure if I'm getting this grammatically correct, but I think that but God serves as a conjunction. And a conjunction sort of connects two ideas. And to help children in the 70s in America understand this part of speech, there was this little song on Schoolhouse Rock called Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Yeah, you guys, I mean, all right. Very good, very good. They played the same songs on public television in Georgia as they did in California, obviously. Conjunction, junction, what's your function here? These two words bridge the gap between the pessimism of verses 1 and 3 where there is no hope to the only hope of how God saves us. So let's read this, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So how does God save? These are some of the most important words ever written, ever spoken, ever. 
And let me just walk you through very simply how God saves. Well, we know from other scriptures, other writings of Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all that believe. So what is the gospel? The gospel is this good news of what God has done to atone for human fallenness and sin and folly, atone for the human condition apart from Christ through Jesus' work on the cross. The Bible is very clear that God created everything for his glory and that we in our own will rebelled against God and that put us in that state that we just read before. We're dead, we're enslaved, we're condemned and that's where we stand apart from God. The Bible clearly says that Jesus came as God in the flesh, and he lived a perfect life. So where we rebelled and sin came in and brought death and enslavement and condemnation, Jesus obeyed as a man completely and fully God's justice and law where we rebelled against it. And so Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life in the flesh. And then Jesus, as the perfect man, lays down his life on the cross, and on the cross, something is happening. Jesus isn't just dying as an example of sort of selflessness. No, something far more significant is going on on the cross. Jesus on the cross is substituting himself as a absorbing sacrifice for our sin. And so this is what the Bible says about what Jesus has done on the cross in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, for our sake... He, meaning the Father, made Him, meaning God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Paul referred to earlier when he was talking about the double imputation of Jesus takes our sin and gives us His righteousness. So on the cross, Jesus is bearing the weight of the condemnation. He's bearing the weight of the holiness of God that is against us. He's bearing the punishment and he's bearing it all. He's absorbing it. He's satisfying it. He's extinguishing it. He is, he's dripping it dry. He is, he is consuming all of God's justice that should have been ours on the cross and he's removing it. And then he is then giving us his life and righteousness. And it's that life that makes us alive in him. And so when we read those, ver- those words, words that says, he made us alive together with Christ, how does God do that? He does it the very same way he resurrects Jesus from the grave. He comes and he makes us alive. He gives us, he takes a dead corpse that is being pulled away in the riptide of sin, and he resurrects it. He brings his people back to life through the power of the gospel. He, boom, he breathes life into them. And so when we just quoted that verse in Romans 1 verse 16, just a moment ago, where it says that the the gospel, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, this good news, because it is the power of God to salvation. It is this life-giving news and power of God that when it hits a dead corpse in the grave, makes it alive. And that's the whole reason, by the way, for the story of Lazarus in the Gospel of John. This afternoon, go home and read John chapter 
11, I think it is. And it's this beautiful story of one of Jesus' friends who passes away. He dies. His name is Lazarus. And he has a couple sisters who are also good friends of Jesus. They come to Jesus, who's away in another town at the time, and tell him that Lazarus is dead or that he's very ill. And in between that time, it seems like Jesus takes his own sweet time almost kind of wanting Lazarus to sort of die so that he can prove his power over life and death. In fact, Lazarus does die. And he finally arrives in the town where Lazarus has been buried in the tomb, kind of taking his own sweet time. Jesus goes outside of the tomb of where Lazarus was dead. And we know he's dead because the King James Version said that not only was he dead, but that he stinketh, right? You guys have read your King James Bible. I know you spent some time in Sunday school. And so Lazarus is dead. And Jesus goes to the corpse and he says, Lazarus, rise, get up. And Lazarus gets up. He's made alive. He's brought from death to life. He's given new life because of the power of God's words. Friends, that story is in the Bible not just to prove that God has the power over physical life and death, because we know that he raises a few other people. He brings himself back from, from the grave. That story is in the Bible primarily to give us a picture, a sort of object lesson, an illustration of our salvation. We are dead. And when God intends to save us, his word comes through some poor little avenue like myself or somebody else that's sharing the gospel. And it hits a dead human heart. And that heart comes alive that's that's how god does it he bring he shines but in fact i'll read it i'm gonna mess it up if i don't read it second corinthians four verse second uh, corinthians chapter four verse six let me just read this to you for god who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ so just as there was darkness before anything existed in Genesis, and God just said, boom, let there be light. In the same way, where our heart is dark and dead in sin, God turns the light switch on. He walks into the dark, dead room of our soul, and he hits the on switch, and he shines the light, and all of a sudden, we are alive, and we can see Jesus. And that's salvation, friends. Do you see it is noticeably absent of good works? Or anything on our part. And at our core, we hate that, don't we? Because we want to be able to do something. We want to be able to measure up. But do you realize that is antithetical? It is opposite to the good news of the gospel. And so what happens is Jesus takes the punishment for our sin. And then God raises us from the dead just as he rose Jesus from the dead and makes us alive with Christ. And now that there is life, now that, now that we are alive and we can see instantly, now there is faith and we see Jesus and we turn away from our own life and we trust in Jesus and God makes us his Christians. And now... We begin to live for him. We begin to love him. We begin to follow him because we've been made alive by him, not perfectly here in this life, but we begin to now our heart and our affections begin to orient towards God. 
And we now begin this process of our salvation called sanctification, where we live for him. Friends, that's what the Bible says salvation is. God brings us back to life. Apart from works, solely by his grace. That's why Paul interrupts himself there. As he says, has made us alive together with grace. He almost, he's just, it's almost like he's pinching himself before he can even go on to say that he raised us up and seated us with Christ. He says, do you see this? By, in verse 5 there, by grace you have been saved. And then he repeats it again at the end of the section. Now let's get into why God does this and then a few applications. Why does God save like this? Well, it starts off in verse 7. He says that so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Paul just keeps coming back to this. Do you see? You didn't do anything. God made you alive. He made a corpse come back to life. You didn't have anything. Dead men don't, don't get up by themselves. God does it. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And verse 10 gives us this huge panoramic view of why God saves us. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So we may think, oh, what are you saying, Brad, that good works don't have anything to do with it? You say good works don't save me? Yes, exactly. But do good works now have no part in the Christian life? No. God saves us apart from good works so that we can now be people that go about making much of Jesus through our lives. And so God saves us to show, to display his immeasurable kindness. Do you, see, do, you see that, do you see that when our lives are curved in on ourselves and we're all just like these, 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 these pathetic little creatures that are jealous and, and, and disdainful and we're, we're, we're going after these broken counterfeit loves that when God saves us, what he's wanting to do in that is to show the satisfaction and the preferability of life in Christ over every little broken counterfeit. And so one of the primary reasons that God saves us is to display God is a self-glorifying God. God does whatever he does to show his glory, which is the best gift he can give the universe is to show, to display his goodness. It's like going to the edge of the Alps or the edge of the Pacific Ocean or the edge of the Grand Canyon. And when you see something that is so beautiful and so magnificent, just the beholding of the thing that is glorious is in, in itself satisfaction. And God knows that the best thing that he can give his creation is the display of his own worth. That's why when you read the Bible, it's so important to read it oriented towards God, not towards yourself, reading it, hoping you can get some little nugget to get you through a Tuesday. No, when you turn it and you realize that everything, triumph and tragedy, sickness and pleasure, everything points to the all-satisfying God, then you realize the heart of God in your own salvation to display His own glory. So, that's mankind's condition apart from God. That's how God saves, and that's why God saves. Now, just four brief applications. First, this is to all of us here, whether we're Christians or not Christians. You see, friends, how this just kind of explains 
why things are the way they are. This is why um, I think Christians shouldn't be shocked when we see culture getting progressively worse. Right? There were no good old days, okay? Right? When Eisenhower was president, you know, and everybody used to get their hair cut short and tuck in their shirts, those weren't the good old days. Those were just moral goodness representing itself as goodness when in itself, it, even itself, even sort of American idealism at its core is idolatry, right? There were no good old days. It's been downhill since Genesis 3. And, 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 and when you read the Bible, you see these two divergent kingdoms. You see God separating himself for a people, bringing them upward in Christ, and you see the world continuing to get pulled out by the riptide of its own fallenness. And this explains things, friends. This, this explains why things are the way they are, because humans are utterly incapable and depraved and separated from God. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't work for the good of a culture in our city? No, the Bible has commands that we, as God's people, are to work for the good of our city, but only as a means by displaying the preferability and goodness of God, not because just to make society or culture better. And so this explains why things are the way they are. And it also informs us that electing a particular candidate or getting a particular legislation crossed or uh, uh, passed isn't the ultimate solution. We live in a world that's being pulled out by sin. And the only hope is Christ. Secondly, and I just kind of bleed it into my second point there, and this is for those of you that may be non Yet, not yet believers in this room, not yet Christians. I want you to see this, and I want to drill down here. The gospel really is good news. And it's our only hope, and friend, it's your only hope. Now, I realize, on the surface, it may seem not very hopeful, because you may be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. My whole life, I've sort of been internally comparing myself as relatively better than the guy sitting next to me. And sort of that's sort of internally what I've been basing my self-righteousness on. And you're telling me that just because I'm a relatively good tax-paying, law-abiding citizen, that that's not enough? Yes. And I realize how when you've spent your whole 30 or 40 years or however old you are sort of justifying yourself by your relative goodness to everybody else, that that can sort of make your system come crashing down and now you feel very threatened. But friend, let's just take your line of reasoning Let's take your line of reasoning, sort of take your mode of salvation, which is kind of basic goodness compared to the next day. Let's run that one through, all right? I mean, let's look at the terror and the dread of that system. Where's the line? Like, where's the cutoff, right? You got the most wicked cat in the world, and then you got the most righteous cat in the world, right? So you got Hitler, and you got Billy Graham, right? And then there's some spectrum of human goodness. And let's just say for, you know, conversation's sake, that you and me are kind of somewhere in the middle, we're not the worst cat in the world. We're certainly not the best. Where's the line? Where's the cutoff, man? Like where? Like because you gave a little bit more or you helped one more old lady into the grocery store to her car with the groceries or you uttered one less profanity or you went to one less fret party, you woke up one less time in the back of an El Camino than me. I mean, when, when where's the line? Right? I mean, do you realize how dreadful that is? And the message of Christianity is that humanity 
There is no line for humanity. There is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus, who obliterated the law, who obliterated sin by his perfect life and substitutionary death on the cross. And he takes all of the punishment for all human sin, whether you're a terrorist or whether you're a good preacher, and he takes it all on himself. And now he gives his people the very thing that he requires of them. So he's not asking you to just say, okay, Jesus, it's you. Now I got to go find faith somewhere. No, you're dead. He gives you faith. It's a gift. It's a gift. So don't hear this message saying, whew, I don't have to good, do good works. Now I just have to, you know, sing a Whitney Houston song and believe about the greatest love in me and find faith. That's not even it, friends. He gives the very thing he requires. So if you're hearing these words right now and they're making sense to you and your heart is leaping with hope, friends, I think that's a wonderful indication and probability that God is bringing you back to life and giving you faith. All you got to do now is breathe. Breathe. Turn away from yourself and turn to Jesus. Look to him and believe in him and say, Jesus, I love you. I love you. Do you see how that's such good news? Come on. Call upon Jesus right now. You don't need to have a bunch of stuff figured out, man. You don't need to know the words to the song. You don't need to know when to raise your hands. You don't need to know any stupid, silly Christian jargon. You don't need to know anything. You need to look to Christ right now. Look to Christ. Nothing is stopping you from looking to Christ but your own self-worship. Look to Christ right now, friends. Friends, that is such good news. Third application is that the gospel for us Christians, and this one's aimed at Christians, the gospel is the end of all our boasting. I mean, Paul makes the point several times to say that this is a gift of God. Like, you're not, you're, you're not a Christian because you're a sharp cat. You're not a Christian because you, you grew up in a family. I mean, all those things God may use as a means to bring you to faith, but you're a Christian because God brought your dead heart back to life because he walked into the room of your soul darkness and he flipped the on switch by his sovereign love for you. And so that ends all boasting. So what right do white people have to look down the end of their nose or black people or black people to scorn white people or, or for upper middle class people to, to be derogatory towards lower class people or educated people or uneducated people or Americans and other people? What right, friends? We are not primarily white or black or American or rich or poor. We are either gods or not gods. And if we are gods, we are gods because of God and not ourselves. And so it, this brings an end to all boasting. It brings an end to all human scorn. It brings an end to all uppityness and pompous, pompous lifestyle. It brings an end to all of that because if we are alive, we're alive because of God and nothing else. And this should humble the Christian, man. And when a Christian interacts with another Christian who's dealing with some sin, man, we should with mercy say, brother, I was there. I was there, brother. I was there. And it should humble us. And this should inform our relationships, man. This should, this should transform our... See, do you see how seeing the gospel informs our marriages, our parenting? Because when we realize that we're married to another former 
pardoned rebel, if we're married to a Christian who is very much in process like we are, we begin to see our spouse and all of their inadequacies and all of the little things that they do through the lens of God's redeeming grace and that he is still very much in process with that person. Do you see that? And do you see when we're raising our kids and they're rebelling, do you see that what's online there is not our reputation as parents, but it is God's grace towards that child. This transforms every relationship and is the end of all boasting. And fourthly and finally, all of life is to be lived in response to God's saving grace. See, the message of the gospel, friends, is not, oh, here's this really motivational, inspiring way to get saved. And now that you got that secured, then kind of keep, keep going, doing the stuff you were doing. Just take out the rated R movies. Don't let anybody know that you actually drink beer and, you know, vote Republican. <laughs> Friends, that's not Christianity. He saves us to orient us to himself which is where true joy and satisfaction exists, so that now our lives are to be lived in response to him so that we might make much of him. And let's not equate this with with hero worship, which we're so susceptible to as as American Christians. You know, we think that great works, you know, we got to be some pastor or some preacher or some guy that builds orphanages or does this great. I'm talking about the housewife who just labors well in relative obscurity for the sake of God. I'm talking about the businessman who nobody outside of his little sphere of influence knows, but he's just, he's got all his chips in the table, and he's just living a sort of Christ-saturated life in the cubicle at Tesis or Synovus or Aflac for the glory of God, man. I'm talking about the school teacher who has the limitations of teaching in a public school, who can't preach the gospel maybe in second period English class, but they can live their life in such a way that it becomes evident that they are worshiping something that's so much more satisfying than the broken riptide of this culture and kids and parents and people around them start to be gravitated to the Christ in them and it's just every ordinary everyday obscurity and God uses that for his glory and our joy and that is the great wonderful promise of the gospel that now our life is oriented away from morality and exterior to redeeming everything, every person, every vocation in this room for the glory of God. Now, friends, as we prepare to receive communion now, Christians, have you, like me, just been so susceptible to ruts and selfishness today maybe it's the Holy Spirit just sort of breathed affection and humility and love in your hearts today I just, I just want you Christian just, just to think about the gospel and don't think about it just in the context of securing your eternal destiny Think about it in the context of informing all of your relationships and informing all of your life 
And take right, right now, take the hardest situation in your life, the most frustrating circumstance, and look at it through the lens of what God has done for you in Christ and just ask God how he might be wanting to display his preferability over and against that thing as you just think about it right now. As you, as you like me, and boy, I need to do this, man. I, I, feel, I just confess to you guys, I feel pressure. I feel constant pressure for this church. And, I, and what that is, is, is like I know I'm a Christian, but I just so often, I'll just so easily get my heart and my mind and my eyes around my own belly button thinking as if I've got to do something to sort of make this thing continue to go. And the gospel reminds, it doesn't just save me, it reminds me that I am free, man. I am free to let go of the steering wheel because God is good. Right? So it... it Right? Just look through the most difficult circumstances. Look at it and look at it through the lens of what God has done for you in Christ. And rejoice in that and take comfort in that and rest. And come around this table and receive communion and be renewed in your affections for Jesus. My non-Christian friend, Look to Jesus. I mean, come on. Look to Jesus right now. Do you have ears to hear? Have you heard this? Has this offended you? If it has, good. That's the first step to new life. Burning away of your own flesh. And it hurts. Look to Jesus right now. Look to him and say, Jesus, I love you. You... You alone can forgive. You alone can make me right. You alone can give me life. Right now, where you are, look to Jesus. And as you're looking to Jesus, you know what you're doing? You're simultaneously looking away from yourself. And friends, that is what it means to be a Christian. Look to Jesus and fall in love with him right now. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would do these things that you would stir the affections of the Christians in this room and that you would make dead, enslaved, condemned rebels alive by the power of your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, who shines the light of the knowledge of what Jesus has done to forgive sin and bring life. Lord, make people alive today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.